Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. Rovera is one of the biggest names in North American senior housing. The Mississauga, Ontario-based company serves 20,000 older adults in long-term care homes and retirement residences in Canada, and is the majority shareholder in Sunrise Senior Living, one of the largest U.S. providers. Like senior living providers of all sizes, Rivera was affected by COVID-19 in myriad ways. Given the company's scale and different service lines, it also had a big picture view of the pandemic. In an effort to understand what has happened in this pandemic and prepare for potential future infectious disease outbreaks, the company worked with the panel of medical experts to create a 90-page publicly available report. For this episode of Transform, Rivera CEO Tom Wellner joined me to discuss some of the findings from that report. He also provided an update on the search for a new Sunrise CEO and shared his thoughts on the potential for a multi-brand strategy to serve different parts of the market. Before we get to my interview with Tom, I'd like to take a moment to highlight the annual Senior Housing News Build Conference. In 2021, Build will take place November 17th and 18th in Chicago. Join us to hear how innovators, disruptors, and industry players are redefining development and design for a new era of senior living. Learn more at seniorhousingnews.com slash event slash build. Now here's my interview with Tom Wellner, CEO of Rivera. Tom, thanks for joining the podcast. Hey, Tim. Great to be with you and thanks for the time. Absolutely. So we've got a lot of ground I think we can cover today, but I wanted to start talking about Sunrise a little bit since most of our listeners are based in the United States. And we learned just before the holidays that Chris Winkle would be leaving Sunrise as CEO. So I just wanted to check in and see what you can share about how the process has been going in terms of choosing a successor and if you have any sense of when an announcement might be made about that. Yeah, sure. That's um, I, I did see your story and interview with Chris prior to the uh, end of the year. We have been uh, very much, uh, from a Rivera standpoint, we've been invested and uh, supportive of Sunrise uh, since um, mid-2014. We really are pleased to be associated with Sunrise and the Sunrise uh, Senior Living brand. Uh, we think it is continuing to be the a premium offering for assisted living and, and memory care uh, across the U.S., uh, also here in Canada. We continue to want to move things forward with our partners, Well Tower, as well. So we're really focused on making sure that Sunrise continues to balance the quality clinical side of, of uh, delivery with the needs and uh, desires of the property owners, Ventas Well Tower and uh, Health Peak up to uh, today. And um, with uh, Chris's transition, we are very much looking to continue to keep the momentum uh, going from a operational standpoint. We have a very active development pipeline with Sunrises. The Sunrise team has done a great job from that perspective. And we have been, uh, the board and the majority shareholders have been very actively um, seeking the next uh, leader. I would love to tell you more today, Tim. I may be in a position to do that relatively shortly. We obviously want to make this uh, period 
as concise as possible and continue to enable the team at Sunrise to continue to uh, to grow the business the way we want uh, want it to grow and also to continue to grow the Sunrise brand resonance in the market as well. As you were just talking, I was reminded, you mentioned the article I wrote about Chris back in December, and I was looking over the leadership series interview I did with him maybe back in 2018. And he talked quite a bit about his belief in kind of a multi-brand approach to senior living in the future. And I know Sunrise has the Sunrise Villa brand. So I guess I'm just curious what your thoughts are about creating multiple brands, whether it's within the Sunrise portfolio or within the Rivera portfolio. Is that something that you're looking at doing? Yeah, no, I think I tend to try to approach it by the actual um, client perspective or market segment first and then worry about how the brand and the brand expression serves that segment second. So I think as it relates to Sunrise, what I would say is right now with the leadership transition, I would leave that as an open uh, area for a strategic relook that I would expect we'll be having a dialogue with the new CEO when we uh, put he or she in the chair. As far as my personal views, I think you know we've tended as, as a Rivera investor, we tend to have our Rivera operating brands in the Canadian market. We have a range where we're trying right now to tighten it up. Some has been due to whether or not you know our portfolio that we operate in Canada uh, was initially put together through a series of acquisitions over time, hence locations, asset age, um, mix of uh, amenities and positioning within the uh, you know the economic part of the market uh, tends to be more heterogeneous than homogeneous sunrise is a very the mansions are very homogeneous. We may look at, uh, you know, the villas. We have uh, a desire to uh, continue to see, you know, that concept brought forward. But generally, I think uh, our main focus at Rivera in our Canadian business anyways has been to really be much more clear on where we want to operate, meaning our location. So we've done a lot of work to refine that. Secondly, what we want to operate. So we're looking at the the physical asset, uh, the segments that it's serving. And then thirdly, we're trying to tighten up and focus on uh, linking our operating model and the operating experience to that. So for us, we've been over time doing a lot of, because we're both a property owner and operator, we have been recycling uh, non-strategic assets and will continue to acquire assets that fit the locations, fit the segments. And we're trying to serve a, a premium luxury market segment with a range of services within that model from some seniors' apartments through to mostly independent supportive living with usually 32 to multiples of 32 assisted living memory care, depending on the size. And we tend to be in the 160 to 220 range and sometimes larger. So for a Canadian offering, we're trying to strengthen the core brand within those parameters, Tim, before we're seeking to put multiple brands under uh, our operating platform. And what I would say is we are, though, to my original point, seeking to do uh, service more the 
what I would call middle market economy um, segment, but we would not do that with the current Rivera operating model. I believe that segment is needing to be served, but and to serve it with the current operating model probably makes less sense in my mind. I think we would look at both a different build profile, a different set of locations, a different set of offerings, and our focus is really to make sure that we get the right delivery of those services or make it as streamlined as possible versus trying to get one operator to do multiple things. I think that's it's harder to do. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. When you talk about the middle market and maybe having to find a different model with things like uh, the build, are there specific kind of ideas that you're kicking around? Because I think we've heard a lot of different proposals as everyone's kind of eyeing this middle market and trying to figure out how to create a scalable model, whether it's having more you know, sort of shared suite type designs or different staffing models, relying more on technology, things like that. Any ideas that seem most kind of appealing to you? Yeah, no, I think we've learned a lot. Again, we're um, a majority capital partner in in the province of Quebec and Canada to our partner, Group Selection. And the Quebec market in Canada is quite a well-developed market and well-penetrated from the perspective of percentage of seniors over the age of 75 that um, choose a congregate setting. And I think a lot of the examples there, what I would say is the things that we're learning and and building are one, uh, the size and scale through which you can spread your amenity spaces uh, needs to be the right, the right balance would be point one. I think secondly, we are looking at both the per square foot suite versus amenity space allocations as well. Obviously, things like finishes and that type of thing to be able to both project value as well as make asset longevity work. And then I think the other part that we're not looking at the multiple suites or the different operating models per se, but I think we're trying to make them, at least our thinking is along the lines of lowering your the volume of staffing that you would need to be uh, overseeing as an operator. So what I mean by that is having uh, more opportunities to bring in uh, service offerings that are contracted in and done by others uh, so that your volume of people within residents that are actually on your property management payroll is is more flexible. I think those are types of things, if, if that makes sense from the perspective of the middle market. Yeah. And these are sort of projects that are you already doing in Quebec on the on this model? Yeah, certainly in Quebec, there are ones that absolutely fit that uh, that profile. We do not yet have anything in the English Canada market that that fits that exact profile. However, we we have a partnership with SmartReit, who is a retail, uh, large retail REIT in the Canadian market that has locations as well as a desire to grow in the senior space that we have been doing a lot of work on 
that particular model to bring it in. They they have a lot of sites. They were the largest shopping mall uh, REIT in the Canadian market. They they did a lot of the uh, all the WalMarts in Canada uh, as an example. So that just okay. gives you a flavor of the type of location and the type of mix of um, clients that they serve as their core. And do you have a sense that uh, a similar type of model that you're developing in Quebec and maybe elsewhere in Canada could also work in the States under like a Sunrise Villa brand or some other brand to be determined? Yeah, I, I, I believe uh, there's applicability in multiple markets, to be uh, to be frank. I don't uh, I definitely think there's opportunity in the U.S. Uh, the multi-res or residential market in the U.S. is obviously highly developed. If I compare that to the U.K., as an example, it's far less developed. So I, I definitely think there are applicabilities in the, in the U.S. And I think we just have to be very smart as to which markets make, uh, make sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So um, I do want to be able to talk a little bit about this um, report that Rivera put out. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the backstory here is that Rivera turned to this panel of, of medical experts to examine the company's response to COVID-19 and offer recommendations for changes and improvements. And you released a report that was available to the public that's almost 100 pages long. So I think it's the most robust kind of analysis that I've seen from providers so far about what's happened to this point with the pandemic and lessons learned for the future. So there's a lot in that report. Obviously, we won't have time to go through all of the ideas put forward, but I just flagged a couple of things that stood out to me that I'm curious to get further thoughts from you on. So one of them was that there seem to be several recommendations related to forging closer integration between the senior housing network. And for the purposes of this podcast, most of our listeners are in the private pay side, not so much the long-term care government reimbursed side, um, but forging closer integration across different sites of care in terms of hospitals, physicians, senior housing. Um, and I think this was a trend we were seeing even before the pandemic. So I guess I'm just curious if you can elaborate a little bit on those recommendations and just in general, where, where do you see the path forward here in the next few years in terms of being able to drive this closer collaboration between the different components of the healthcare continuum? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the uh, the question. And yes, the, uh, the report uh, was a response to wave one of the pandemic. And we we basically more or less opened the kimono, so to speak, and Revere in Canada, the core operating business is sort of 76 long-term care, so 10,000 residents in, in long-term care and 10,000 residents uh, that we serve in our retirement portfolio. So it really is focused a lot on the learnings around um, those two experiences. And as you pointed out, Tim, the publicly paid um, long-term care type model was very different in wave one versus our experience in our more independent retirement model. We did things like this independent panel had some of the top gerontologists in the country. We had an in, they're all independent chair, Dr. Bob Bell's former deputy minister of health in Canada's largest province. We had infection control experts, et cetera, et cetera. But I think to your question, the continuum part of the, and the integration of the systems, I think what we've all experienced, both from everything from the WHO through to the various country responses through to, you know, what I see in the U.S. 
goes down state by state, uh, county by county. The same thing in Canada, we experienced a public health system that was not, uh, was almost, even though the recommendations from the SARS experience were to strengthen public health uh, surveillance and whatnot, successive governments uh, made decisions to underfund it. I think the structure, it was part of it that comes out in the report where you've got in the Canadian context, a federal set of federal funding and federal parameters, but it's left to each of the 10 provinces to more or less implement the healthcare system or the health uh, services within the, in the province. So there's a high level of variations. It's almost like we're living in 10 separate healthcare systems in a, in a country of 34 million people. And they're almost like 10 separate health maintenance organizations in, in the U.S. So I think what the links between the public health directives uh, were very confusing. Uh, we would have in the province of Ontario, Canada's largest province, we have 34 separate health public health units, all doing, giving different directions, different directives, very challenging for a chain operator like, uh, like Rivera is. So I think you, you see that there. So it's similar to how the U.S. system, you know, may work in one hospital system versus others. So that has been one of our large or significant experiences. The other dynamic, I think, that comes out in the report is the differences between the acute care setting versus the community setting. And it's just been fascinating to me as we've gone through this, the sort of lack of understanding and appreciation, frankly, by acute care-based experts and whatnot to what actually happens in either a retirement community or a long-term care setting or, frankly, other community settings and, um, you know, that the differences between staffing models, funding models, the way infection control is done, the expectations for physicians to be on site, et cetera, has been one of the big uh, other big learnings. So I think you know, you see there's a lot of opportunity to look at this whole design of how seniors move through the, the system. I mean, we, we owned, a, when I started in, in my job many years ago, uh, in 2014, we owned 29 uh, specialized nursing facilities in nine states in the U.S. And you know, one of the things I, I think in the U.S. system actually is relatively good at compared to the Canadian system is actually incenting uh, movement of patients through that continuum. So there's an, there's incentives and disincentives for hospitals to make sure that patients are moving out of hospital at, a, at, a, at the right time, that there are step-down you know, spots within the STAR units, and then physiotherapy or whatever can, can help them uh, either get to a home home setting, but with the right support. Canadian system doesn't have a lot of those things. So I think you see that a lot in the report as well. Got it. So I guess staying on this health question, thinking about the private pay side of things, the retirement communities in Canada or the senior living communities in the United States, do you see 
that bringing more healthcare on-site in on-site clinics or through partnerships with physician groups or hospitals is something that's going to occur? Yes, I think that's certainly a trend that we see in the U.S. And certainly, I think one of the uh, things that's been laid bare in Canada is very much the need to to have that um, be more robust. Simple things like, you know, the physician and we have a chief medical officer at Rivera. And one of the, the things to make clear is in the long-term care setting, there is usually one or multiple physicians assigned to a particular long-term care home um, that are associated with the hospital and, and appropriately do their thing and are interested in the space. I, I think that that's not as consistent as it should be. And the expectations of medics and uh, what they need to be doing and how frequently they need to be doing it at long-term care um, sites is, is an important part that would enhance that movement as well and that sort of integration. Within the retirement setting, it's different from the perspective that there's a blend of physicians that may be associated with one or multiple long-term care or retirement communities, but because they're independent settings, um, seniors will have their own potentially own uh, existing physician. So there's there's the complexity of trying to make sure that the integration of all the services happens in a in a smooth manner. I think is an important dynamic that uh, that will get accelerated as a as a positive outcome. I believe from uh, post-pandemic life. Got it. So another big topic in the report was around staffing, and that's been a huge challenge during COVID-19, both in Canada and the United States. And there were a lot of recommendations related to everything from creating new positions in the workforce to new scheduling practices. So I'm wondering if you can just discuss, are there any changes that Rivera's already implemented or anything you're considering implementing, uh, maybe specifically in the retirement home staffing practices? Yeah, no, um, yeah, there's certainly, I mean, this is the people serving people business, um, whether it's retirement or long-term care or whatnot. And, you know, every market that we invest and operate in or operate in um, has the same sort of strains on both quantity and ability of, of, of systems to provide adequate uh, both credentialed staff and, and uh, just uh, regular support staff that want to be in the space. So part of uh, our efforts uh, as it relates to the enhancements to staffing, uh, we did a lot of external recruiting. The different, one of the differences between Canada and the U.S. is in Canada, uh, healthcare is highly unionized. So we're probably in the 90s as percent of healthcare workers uh, unionized versus in the U.S., maybe that number is 20 to 25 percent. So there's a dynamic there that's that's different, but I think the the basic challenges are one of you know making sure that the right number of it, there's a volume of of hours per clinical need or resident uh, acuity, and the acuity, especially in the Canadian long-term care setting, is uh, significant. Uh, people, it's a very needs-based business. Uh, there are uh, there's almost uh, two people for every available bed. So, you know, in Ontario, there's 38,000 people on waiting lists for, you know, 60,000, 70,000 beds. So 
it's a significantly challenging space. The acuity, uh, you know, we have most residents have five and six comorbid conditions and a significant amount of cognitive challenges. So from a staffing perspective, it's not just the volume of hours on average per resident. It's also there's some highly specialized needs. So we need to be able to uh, train and give people support to be able to learn the skills and, and to be able to practice their profession. The other, so we we continue to do additional specialized infection control training in the short term, but looking for ways to continue to grow other skills and specializations. And then on the clinical side and the registered side, we just need more, I would say, practical training combined with the academic training. So we're looking at trying to make sure that the retirement settings and the long-term care settings enable people to have the experiences that they might otherwise need to be able to practice and grow their practical application and the skills they're learning in either community colleges or um, nursing colleges, which I think will help as well. And then I guess the third area, Tim, would be around the use of technology for as many repeatable tasks as possible. And there's a whole series of technology tools that we're using to screen res- resumes, whether it's AI or you know tools like Bookchain that we've put in, which really helped with uh, reach outs and scheduling and various other things um, similar to what uh, we use with Sunrise and OnShift. So more and more um, ability to, to integrate technology will help as well. Sure. Great. So if I can squeeze one more question in here, this is just a specific idea that was in that report that um, stood out to me because I don't know that I've really heard it elsewhere. And that was that maybe senior living should be allowed to designate certain family members as essential caregivers so that they could continue to visit their loved ones and monitor changes in their condition. And so I'm just curious if uh, you think that is a kind of a feasible recommendation and if there's any, I guess, groundswell of support for doing something like that in Canada. Yeah, I think, you know, there was actually a Globe, uh, one of our national newspaper articles the other day where there was highlighted a, uh, a daughter who basically through the pandemic uh, worked out, it wasn't with a Rivera site, but um, worked out a way to basically stay with her mother for six or eight weeks um, within the long-term care home. Um, there are a whole bunch of challenges with that, but Yes, there are sort of, there's more societal support, I guess, Tim, would be my, would be first message. Um, I think what I've seen and and after the first wave of the pandemic, there's, there's a physical toll that everybody's taken that are working at the front lines and we're all carrying our own stresses around. But what is, I think, most apparent to me uh, through that first wave and when we got into June timeframe is both the residents as well as the families just had been so isolated from each other that there was this groundswell of how do they get them together. I think what we found in wave two and as we started into wave three is now that we've had good uh, screening, testing and tracing and good, you know, not that we didn't, you know, that, that's in place that we've got people very accustomed to much better appreciation for the need to maintain 
high levels of infection control and IPAC uh, procedures. As long as there is a, you know, we, we basically now designate two essential caregivers per resident in most of our retirement communities. We, you know, work with them to make sure that their skills and capabilities are understanding of infection control. So there's a bit of training that we do. We, um, you know, the screening component and certainly the vaccines will make it better, even more applicable in the future. But from a psychological and from a human connection and a human communication perspective, it's, you know, very, very helpful, I think, to both our residents, but also to our own staff, but also very engaging for the family members who want to to do that. So we're doing everything we can to try to enable it. Right. Um, well, this was a great conversation. Um, I know this was a big report, so I guess I'll just give you an opportunity if there's anything we haven't talked about that you want to share that draw uh, people's attention to. I guess I want to give you an opportunity to do that if you'd like. Yeah, no, look, I think we've tried to as an organization, share a lens from an operator's perspective because the operator is right in the middle of the system and you see uh, both the the wonderful, magical things that um, that happened uh, that would warm your heart and you see a lot of uh, really challenging things. I think overall, we have you know, put in place almost all of the, the short-term recommendations and even with that, uh, the second wave and the third wave, I think we've been able to predict better where the virus is likely to show up through the work that we've done at, at implementing the the pandemic playbook that we put in place, the additional IPAC, uh, the, the additional training, the extra staffing that we've put in place, at least limit spreads uh, in the second wave and catch uh, quicker infections that are coming in. So I think that would be just my general uh, comment, uh, Tim, based on what uh, what's in the report. And hopefully it's a helpful uh, document and, a, and really a tribute to all the excellent uh, work that our frontline teams have been doing over the last year now. So that would be it. Great. Well, uh, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Tim. That does it for this episode of Transform. Once again, I'd like to highlight the annual Senior Housing News Build Conference. In 2021, Build will take place November 17th and 18th in Chicago. Join us to hear how innovators, disruptors, and industry players are redefining development and design for a new era of senior living. Learn more at seniorhousingnews.com slash event slash build. I'm Tim Mullaney. Thanks for listening.